Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what are the economic consequences of Russia's war with Ukraine? You'd be surprised at how high those numbers are. How are Canadians really feeling about the 2022 federal budget and the CP leadership race? Leger has done a survey, and uh, Executive VP Dave Schultz will join us to talk about that. And does Canada have the labor pipeline to sustain the recent EV investments? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we said, we don't live in a bubble here in Canada, and a lot of what's going to be happening today with our economy and with our Bank of Canada rate uh, is predicated on what's going on with world events. And there's a very timely piece uh, that uh, has been written about this. Uh, it's uh, called The Economic Consequences of Russia's War on Ukraine. And by the way, a spoiler alert, uh, the consequences are significant. Uh, Dan Churiak is the author of the piece. He's a fellow in residence with the C.D. Howe Institute and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Dan, thank you so much. Glad you could join us today. A real pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, Dan, we've talked about this, in, in, I guess, in abstract terms about, well, of course, prices are going to rise. We already know the price of gasoline has risen. You know, you just see that last time you went to the pumps, you see what's going on. Uh, but you threw some pretty significant numbers here. You say the short-term costs of this invasion, that being the Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, is probably tabulated in the trillions of dollars. Uh, that's the short term. Uh, what are we looking at here? This is, this is uh, suggest this is significant, I guess, would be a massive understatement. Absolutely. I mean, just the damage to the economy in, in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus itself is quite enormous. It's not as I put it at order of 880 billion there alone. The Ukrainian economy uh, is basically destroyed. Ninety percent of its businesses are either shut down or just operating at marginal levels. It's on life support from, you know, in, international assistance. Um, but, uh, you know, on top of that, you've got the Material damage to the Ukraine, which uh, the infrastructure is just being destroyed, shelled, missiles falling. Uh, I put that at 200. This, this is actually the Ukrainians have put this at 210 million. And that was a few weeks ago. Um, then when you take into account the destruction of the, in, you know, the value of intangible assets, think about Russia. I'll just give you an example to make this very concrete. Daniil Medvedev became world number one tennis uh, player uh, just before the invasion. He was said to re, you know, pull in you know, tens of millions of endorsement uh, money. He's now a toxic asset. Uh, that's gone. And that is multiplied time over and over in, in all kinds of ways. So you've got this destruction of value of corporate, of corporate assets, intangible assets, which is large as well. I come up with a figure of $2 trillion just on that alone. Uh, but then you take a look at the cost of, you know, the human costs and, you know, statistical agencies talk about the value of a statistical life. And if you take into account both the debt, uh, the death toll already now is, is, is way larger than what I had in my papers now up to at least 45,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you take into account sort of the damage to life caused by PTSD and what that we're talking very, very large numbers. And that's the short run cost. And, and that's just Ukraine trying to rebuild Ukraine, and of course, an economy that's that's in, in tatters right now, if not totally destroyed. Uh, but as you point out in the piece, there there are other uh, things that we have to factor in. For instance, uh, there are African nations that buy their grain from Ukraine. Uh, that's stopped, and uh, you know, now we've got a food crisis that's going to be occurring in other parts of the world because those supply chains have been interrupted. Absolutely, uh, you know, most of the grain in in Ukraine ships out through the Black Sea ports. Those are either destroyed or mined and blocked right now. Uh, the stories coming out from Ukraine suggest that the that the crop will act 
country not be harvested. Uh, and that's a huge blow, as you say, to the particularly to the North African uh, economies that rely on that. And that then ripples throughout. I mean, for Canada, it means higher prices, which is actually a good thing. But if you take into account the what that means for inflation, what that means for interest rates, for business uncertainty, it's not good for the economy. Yeah, I know. That's an interesting talking point, too, because you're right. Our initial reaction might be, well, we make grain here. I mean, you know, we can give them some of that. And you know, that's that's going to be good for Western farmers. Uh, but it's getting there and it's the cost of it and whether or not they can afford it. And then, you know, are they going to go deeper in debt? It's, a, it, it's really you're getting into a pretty ugly cycle here, aren't you? You, you absolutely are. We've already had two economies uh, default. Pakistan and Sri Lanka have defaulted on their debt. Russia has also technically defaulted because it's refusing to pay its debts in uh, international currency. Uh, so, you know, th- there is now a, a financial crisis brewing in the world. All that adds up to, you know, higher interest rates, much higher risk premiums uh, for investment worldwide. Uh, and then... And you think about sort of the context we have in China, uh, which has been the manufacturing hub for the world. You know, Shanghai is shut down because of COVID. So these are uh, multiple uh, shocks to the world economy. Uh, uh, And all that adds up to, you know, if you take a look at the United States uh, and our economy follows the U.S., you can basically uh, forecast our economy by what's going on south. Their inflation rate in March hit 8.5 percent, not seen since 1981. And we know what that means. That means higher interest rates, and that means higher uh, borrowing costs, higher investment costs, and uh, and not good for the economy. Let's talk about that global economy, uh, which we, I guess, to a certain extent, Dan, maybe have taken for granted over the last number of years. You know, the smaller world, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain was torn down, the, the wall in Berlin was torn down years ago. Uh, there's, uh, you know, under Gorbachev, there was Gladnost, and, uh, you know, less so, obviously, under Putin. Uh, but the sanctions, uh, the acrimony that this has caused right now, uh, the broken uh, supply chains that have caused right now, uh, our country is going to start looking inward again as opposed to globally when it comes to self-sufficiency? Well, uh, we've been looking at uh, sort of the economic risk factors simply because of the COVID breakdown. This adds to that, of course. Uh, so if you look at the WHO, the World Trade Organization forecast for global trade, it has has ratcheted down significantly and on a more or less permanent basis uh, because uh, trade follows security lines. So um, if there are now much sharper, higher security uh, 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 chasms, if you will, or or walls between uh, the West and Russia, and because of this, you know, no limits uh, friendship pact between China and Russia, Every company around the world that is invested in China is starting to think about, you know, country risk in a much more serious fashion there. So this will have ripple effects, which are fairly, fairly major. China itself, you know, had articulated uh, this this policy of dual circulation where they were going to be much more relying on their internal uh, economy versus the export economy. So that too is being factored in by uh, companies around the world. So we are looking at a much more divided world, a world where there's a lot more uh, uh, country risk associated with foreign direct investment and a lot more country risk associated with supply chains uh, that, that cross the security divide. And remember that the supply chains that we have today 
were forged at a time of peak globalization when these uh, security divides were not in place. So there's a lot of potential unraveling, and that's very costly. Just to give you an example, uh, Maersk, which is one of the biggest shipping companies in the world, and they know a lot about what's going on because they, they can see their clients' orders, right? So they have uh, millions of customers sending stuff to Russia. They pulled out completely from Russia. They sold off their assets, and they supplied one-third of the container traffic into Russia. So their, te their understanding of what's going on in, in, in the world is very deep and very granular. So I look to, you know, uh, I anticipate that, that we are seeing a, a much sharper hit to long-term uh, uh, growth than, than what we have seen in the short term. And to underscore that, the World Trade Organization forecast for uh, the, the long-term cost was, you know, I, I, I have two trillion. They have five trillion in the long term, <laughs> just to give you a sense. Yeah. Either way, it's a pretty bleak picture. Uh, you also reference in the piece uh, about a new iron curtain uh, between Russia and the rest of Europe. For those of us that were old enough to remember the the ugliness of the uh, the fifties and sixties, uh, let's face it, uh, you know, you you can't talk about economics without getting into politics. I mean, th that's obvious these days. If we are heading into another Cold War, and there are, as you know, Dan, some would suggest we're already there now because of what's been going on here, what's that going to do to, to global trade? And, and Are we going back to those ugly days where there are barriers and, uh, and, and, and that global uh, economy that we're used to is going to be stifled extensively? That's certainly the anticipation. Um, certainly in Europe, uh, if you look at Finland and Sweden already talking about joining NATO, Mm -hmm. And and they're talking about sort of a border that's going to be bristling with uh, with arms to deter, uh, you know, a, a land invasion. We didn't think that a land invasion would tank. Um, it blows the mind. But that's what we're looking at right now. You know, NATO the, uh, has deployed uh, ships with, you know, uh, to in, into the Baltic, again, bristling with arms. Yes, there is a new uh, sort of iron curtain descending along that border. And if you think about what this means for the European part of Russia's economy, it's effectively nuked by Putin. I mean, he hasn't nuked anyone else yet, but he sure has nuked their own uh, 21st century economy. Russia, Moscow, um, Petersburg, home to budding unicorns. And that's all gone, you know. And so that integration across the European border is gone. Russia will uh, pivot towards uh, China, but that's the Eurasian part of, of the Russian economy. That's the oil and gas. That will find markets. It's finding mm -hmm. markets in India at a discount. It will find markets. But yeah, the in terms of the uh, European-Russian uh, border, that is now, I think, lost for a generation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, the real country risk, in my view, is how do we interpret China's position on this? I'll give you another sort of story, which is very striking. Uh, uh, Huawei, uh, which is, of course, the world's uh, leading 5G company, pulled out of Russia. You know, that I think is very, very telling. Nokia pulled out of Russia. So, yeah, the question whether China is, is going to be the big one, because China, of course, is the elephant in the room here. Uh, I got a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you again about those the geopolitics of this. If and again to harken back to the to the ugly days of the Cold War, when you don't have those international trade supply chains and and you're trying to expand trade and and commerce uh, within your own sphere, uh, there seemed to be a propensity back in those days anyway, Dan, to try to extend that sphere. 
you know, Russia certainly did that into Eastern Europe, and we've seen the results of that with the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin seems to be trying to reinvent that. Uh, what about China? I mean, they had their eye on Taiwan for some time right now. Do they look at this as an opportunity to say, uh, yeah, it's time for us to, to, to move into an area like that, too, to expand our markets? Well, that's certainly one of the uh, uh, sort of risks that was immediately noted when, um, uh, you know, Putin and, and, she, and she had their uh, little talk where they recognized each other's quote unquote interests in Ukraine and Taiwan, respectively. I think the um, results of, uh, of the uh, invasion so far, you know, the 48 hour invasion is now into its 48th day. Um, uh, would uh, certainly give pause to any, uh, uh, you know, thought about a, uh, a military invasion of Taiwan. Plus, what do you get? It's it's a Taiwan is twenty million people. It's one big Chinese city. Uh, uh, you know, has many trillion dollar economies. Uh, I don't think that's going to be on. Um, but if you think about things like the the, the Belt and Road Initiative that that, that she had, the, you know the, the, the New Silk Road from uh, China overland to Europe, that mm-hmm. ends in Russia now. It's big white elephant. The cost to China of this is also enormous. And uh, the real issue I think for for the world is whether India, in terms of its relationship, it's wavering. It, it, it gets its military supplies and buys its energy from Russia. Is that enough to cause it to create some kind of a block with, uh, you know, China, Russia and, and India, uh, which is then creates a new security divide vis-a-vis the West? What about Africa? Africa is, you know, swiveling in the wind on this as well. So the, you know, the possible emergence of a new non-aligned movement or whatever is, is up there as well. But what we can tell is that we are no longer in that world of, you know, that unipolar moment of an undivided world. It's, it's now divisions, are, uh, you know, going up all over the place. Changing almost by the hour, too. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for this. It was a pleasure having you on the program. Very insightful stuff and uh, uh, may, maybe a harbinger of things to come. We'll have to see how the uh, politicians actually start to respond to that. Uh, by the way, check out the piece. Go to the C.D. Howe Institute and uh, you can check out uh, Dan's piece in there. Thanks again, Dan. Take care. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Dan Churiak uh, from uh, the C.D. Howe Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get the mood of Canadians. Uh, you know, we're uh, in, a, in a tough economic time, Bank of Canada, by the way, just did raise the uh, the interest rate uh, by one per, up to 1%. So there's uh, going to be some ramifications to that. But it's all tied into the budget uh, because, let's face it, that's the government's job, right, to try to assuage our concerns about what's going on economically and with the pandemic. And uh, last week, of course, Finance Minister Christian Freeland delivered uh, their first federal budget, actually, since the last election. It was delayed again because of COVID. So how are we feeling about that? How confident are we? And is the government heading in the right direction? Well, the folks that have their finger on the pulse of Canadians, of course, are the good folks at Leger Marketing. Uh, Dave Schultz is the executive VP for Leger, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about uh, the latest survey they've done. Uh, Dave, great to talk with you. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. Uh, we're getting dumped on here from left, right, and center economically and everything else these days. We're concerned about the price of gasoline. Uh, we're concerned about what the government's going to do to try to ease our pain just a little bit. Uh, what did you find out as, as you uh, checked out how Canadians were feeling about the budget itself? You know, it's interesting. We're about a, a, you know, a third, a third, a third. So one third, 38% think the budget is going in the right direction. It's a step in the right direction. 
Uh, 32% said it's going in the wrong direction and 30% don't know. So to me, there's uh, there's not a lot of uh, uh, decision or, or positive coming out of the budget this time from a Canadian's perspective. Did that surprise it, you that we're kind of split right down the middle there? Well, it, what's interesting, and like we're seeing in other countries and we're seeing more so in Canada, uh, there's a big split along party lines as well. So if you are a liberal voter, 69% think it's going in the right direction. If you're a CPC voter, you're 18% think it's going in the right direction. So a large part of this comes down to party lines. But then when you start looking at components of the budget, and you know you talked about gas prices, you talked about uh, people just trying to keep their uh, houses, household finances, finances together, um, generally Canadians agree that the budget did not go far enough when it comes to um, initiatives to fight rising inflation in the country. So, and that's an so, interesting take on that uh, because, you know, we, well, let's face it. I mean, some of the, uh, the presuppositions here, well, wow, this is a liberal NDP, uh, you know, partnership. They're just going to spend, spend, spend. And uh, now it, it seems as if Christy Freeland's being, uh, right now she's being criticized for not spending enough. Yeah, well, there, there's three key things that came out. Canadians think we need to do more to fight rising inflation. We need to do more to support access to housing. And it's a little bit split, but there's a more than less think that we should be doing more to help young families and younger Canadians. And when you look behind all the numbers, a lot of that's tied towards access to housing. So the ability to actually buy a house for younger Canadians. And not surprising, Freeland came out with, with a, quite a bit of discussion around adjusting how they're going to approach housing, the amount of money they're going to spend on new housing. And um, you know, people are saying that's not even enough at this point. Well, and even where the money's being directed, I guess there's a lot of question marks about that as well. Uh, I think that was the key word, wasn't it, Dave, before they even uh, sat down to talk about this budget, was affordability. We want to make things more affordable for Canadians. And, uh, well, just looking at the numbers that you got from your latest polling, it, it sounds as if most Canadians think they missed the mark. I, I would say so, because either we don't know or we're against it uh, for the largest part. Uh, I think Canadians wanted more out of this budget. And when you start, I talked about party lines. Uh, I expected people who voted NDP to be happier with what came out of this budget, given the agreement that the Liberals and the NDP have. Only 49% of NDP voters are thinking this is a, a good direction for the budget as well. So generally, people were left wanting a little bit based on this one. Which kind of underscores, I think, some of the stuff you guys did uh, back when that was announced. Uh, this this NDP uh, Liberal thing is a very uneasy alliance, isn't it? It is it, for for a lot of people. You, you know, obviously for the conservatives it is, but even oh, yeah. within uh, <laughs> within the Liberal and NDP party, because there is, you know, NDP would like to do even in in different directions for spending. We know Liberals have a very specific policy in mind. How is this marriage going to come about over time? And right now, it looks like Liberals think that they're getting what they want, at least according to the budget. And NDP are still wait, waiting a bit to get what they want. It's it's one of these situations where neither one seemed to want to turn their back on the other one right, for fear of, aha, see, you, this was all disingenuous uh, and <laughs> waiting for it to happen. Yeah, and then behind all of that, we have there's the whole issue of the deficit. So, yes, we wanted more spending, and yes, we wanted to, uh, you know, in general, other than, say, defense, people are sending and being spend more, uh, at least to combat inflation on housing. But... Um, you know, only 41% of Canadians say our deficit is way too high. 
and that we should have put more spending cuts in place. So it's one of those things you can't make everyone happy, but this budget doesn't seem to be making a lot of people happy. Wasn't that an old cliche that when you try to please everyone, you please no one? That that seems to be the essence of this, doesn't it? I, I think that's where we're coming across on this one, definitely. You know, because obviously they tried, they tried to couch some of those numbers. Well, I mean, we all know about, for instance, to your example about military spending, uh, the pressure from NATO and from others to, to move that up to 2% of GDP. Uh, and the NDP, you know, you know, Jagmeet Singh was on a program the day after that and just said, no way, it's not happening. We don't want that. Uh, suggesting that 2% number was an arbitrary number anyway. So they seem to have just split it down the middle and they've gone up to 1.5. Uh, which still bothers the NDP and it really bothers the conservatives and even the financial folks are saying, uh, you know, given what's going on globally these days. So it's going in half measures like this uh, is, is not really winning the hearts and minds of Canadians, is it? It, it isn't. But also, I think um, Jagmeet Singh needs to listen to the party a little bit, given where we're at right now with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, 30% of NDP voters would like us to spend more on the national defense budget compared with only 22% who want us to spend less. So even the, the voters themselves are pushing. It's, it's not as high as the Conservatives or the Liberals, but they're mm-hmm. pushing the party a little bit to be more open to more defense, fund, defense spending. And that, that's interesting, uh, because the, that pressure is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, and, 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 of course, you know, once we get down to the fine, to, about you know, exactly where those dollars are going to go, uh, you know, is they, uh, the criticism of course from the pcs as well look this is just to put duct tape on the stuff that we've already got we need to spend more and get more in people involved so that's going to be a debate but the that's housing definitely. thing the housing thing dave is such a key part to this it is. on so many levels uh affordability is that word once again you know that can young families even afford to buy a house these days can they get a down payment uh the government seemed pretty proud of some of the initiatives put in uh, when it comes to uh, the savings account, the tax-free savings account, et cetera, uh, but uh, clearly not enough. Clearly not enough to make people people still want more coming out of this is what we're hearing here. And to a certain degree, until we start to see the results of this, uh, there will be a call for more because what's happened today is no different from yesterday. These plans are all for the next, for the future a bit, for the next year. How is this going to help people today? So until we start to see those results, and I think the government's really going to have to keep track of what is this meant for housing prices, what is this meant for housing access, and they're going to need to convince us that the money they've put into it has gone into the right place. Is the government and the Bank of Canada working at cross purposes here? You know, the interest rate hike today is supposed to cool off the housing market, for instance. Uh, and if you've got, you know, young families in, in, in your, you know, familiar spiel, and they're going to say, wait a second, I wanted to buy a house this year. Now, am I going to be able to even afford that now? I mean, you know, interest just, just went up. So I, I'm wondering if they're actually battling against each other in a, in, a, in a rather bizarre way. Yeah, I'm not an economist on this one, but I've wondered the same thing <laughs> from, my, from my perspective. It's, uh, it, it's hard to see how this is helping younger people uh, buy a house if they're having to spend more on their mortgage. Well, and the other element to this, too, and I know they made a big deal about this uh, when I had the minister on a, a day after the budget, uh, you know, about these programs, you know, to, to the, the jumpstart, et cetera. Uh, and, and I guess we have to remind ourselves, Dave, you know, federal government isn't going to build houses. Uh, they can incentivize, uh, you know, the private sector to get involved in that. But again, I'm hearing the same comment that you did from your, your polling. Not enough. Uh, it, you know, how are you going to get that done? Because the logjam... Uh, when it comes to building new houses, is really at the municipal and provincial level. It's not at the yeah. federal level. 
Yeah, so they could they the thing is that they've sort of taken ownership of this by putting these types of initiatives into the budget. So if they can't convince the other parties or the other people they're working with at the provincial and municipal level to work with them to also help in this area, the the Liberals may, and the NDP, to that matter, may end up wearing this if it doesn't work out. And, and that's an old political axiom, isn't it? If you're going to take ownership of something, you better know how to work it. And, well, and, um, this, and, and to your point, they, they don't have control over the end, the end product or the end decision. So this is a bit of a... It, it, it was one, something that Canadians were calling for, so it's a very popular uh, piece. It, it looks good if you're taking care of this, but can they actually do it? That'll be something that they'll have to figure out over the next couple of years. Well, especially because here in Ontario, uh, you know, I was talking to a couple of the local mayors, I mean, they're suggesting, hey, that was good news. Okay, there's going to be a, a fast track now to get houses built. Uh, there's an, a, a, a Doug Ford bill that's uh, pending right now that basically is going to make that more problematic. So again, those barriers and that lack of communication and that lack of cooperation uh, between those three levels of government is going to make this much more difficult. Oh, quite definitely, definitely. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know, invariably, I know one of the questions you always ask is, okay, you may disagree with this, and you may think we're going down the wrong direction, but are you bullish on what's going on here? I mean, are, are they pessimistic about the future? Are they concerned that, uh, that maybe the government doesn't have a handle on, on solutions to what we're facing? Uh, generally, people, it's interesting, because it, to me, what ha- uh, the, the vote intent that comes out after the federal budget is really an indicator of, are we in line with uh, do we feel the party is in line with what we want have we, they proposed something that's good for us uh we saw a slight a slight liberal drop right now um since the budget has come out but it would still be if there was an election held today it would still be a liberal minority government so nothing really has changed so are we optimistic we're we're hopeful um, a lot of people are sitting back and waiting to see what happens uh, and a third of Canadians are are pessimistic about it, but uh, it hasn't really changed anything at the political spectrum. Uh, one of the great things about you guys at Leger, of course, is that you multitask. I know that with all this stuff going on with the economy and the budget, uh, you also uh, ask people about uh, about the Conservative leadership race, which is ongoing, and it's starting to heat up. It's uh, getting rather acrimonious now, especially between Pierre Polyev and, and Jean Charest. Polyev was the, the perceived front runner. What do, what do your numbers tell you about what's happening now? Our numbers still tell us that he is the he is the front runner going going into this next month coming up. Eighteen uh, percent of Canadians overall would like to see him as the leader of the party, and forty three percent of people who vote conservative, compared to eighteen percent of those who vote conservative would pick Jean Charest. I mean, Jean Charest is is clearly in second place, and he's the the second choice. But uh, uh, Pierre Poilievre is uh, is is the clear leader coming out right now, and. It's interesting, though, when you put his name into vote intent, so let's take out uh, Candace Bergen's name and say, who are you likely to vote for? There's no real change. So again, we're left with a liberal minority. So he may we, he's perceived as having the best chance to defeat the liberals but uh, and the best leader to do that, but there isn't a lot of change on a national scale, regardless of what they do at this point. That's uh, fascinating. Uh, in other words, the, them that like him, like him a lot. I guess is the way to, to best phrase that. Uh, but as we've seen, and I know you're going to do a lot more polling between now and September when they actually choose a new leader, uh, but the, the front runner of the last three leadership races has ended up not winning. 
Uh, and yeah. that may have something to do with the fact that they use the rank battling system, which uh, maybe evens out the playing field just a little bit. You know, and is does he have enough votes to win on a first ballot? And if not, does he have the ability to grow? Those are all questions that are, I guess, yet to be answered, but they're very important parts of this, aren't they? And what I find really interesting, and so where is the conservative conservatives going to get votes from? Uh, obviously, they can pull people back from the PPC to their party. But if they want to pull liberals over to their party, Jean Charest actually tests the highest among current liberal voters. So that's not, a, you know, so that's something else that's going to come into the mix as it goes forward. You know, Pierre Poiliev is talking to a committed audience that's already conservative. Can Jean Charest steal voters back from liberals? And I think that's going to be discussed at the conservative headquarters as well. Fascinating stuff, a long way to go on that race, but uh, always great to get uh, uh, an idea as to where Canadians are on that. And of course, that's what we uh, rely on a good friend at Leger for. Dave, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again. Have a great weekend. All right. Thanks, Bill. You too. Take care. Dave uh, Schultz, of course, who is the executive vice president of uh, Leger Marketing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. These are exciting times from a manufacturing standpoint here in Ontario because it looks as if we're moving into the 21st century. Uh, let's face it, there was, uh, just to put this in context for a second, there was some concern uh, about four years ago, I guess, uh, when the Ford government was elected. Uh, one of the first things Doug Ford did was uh, basically tear out all the charging stations for EVs and uh, say that, well, that rebate program, not doing that anymore. But he has had a, uh, well, a, an awakening, I guess, so to speak, uh, and has spent the last couple of months uh, talking with the big automakers and, and uh, very positive results as a result of that. There's millions and millions of dollars being invested in EV production, future EV production here in Ontario, and battery production too. So the, the things are looking great now from an economic standpoint. But do we have the labor pipeline? Do we have the labor force, the skilled labor, to sustain something like this? I want to bring our next guest into the conversation. Jason Myers is the CEO of Next Generation Manufacturing in Canada. Uh, Jake, great to have you back with the show on today. Uh, how, are you bullish about this? Are you thinking we've turned the corner here in Ontario and we're we're moving forward into the 21st century? Thanks, Bill. Uh, well, first of all, it's great to be back. Uh, and yes, I am really bullish, uh, not only because of the investments that we're seeing right now uh, in in batteries, in EV production here in, uh, in Ontario, uh, but because of the potential for the future. Uh, you know, the, the entire industry around the world is being challenged today by some pretty big innovation problems. Uh, batteries are too big. They're too heavy. They don't, uh, cars don't travel very far. Uh, they don't travel very far in cold weather. And uh, so these are, these are some big issues that, uh, that the EV industry is facing. And I think Canada and Ontario especially has everything that takes the, the research, uh, the clean energy, the, uh, uh, the great uh, technologies that we have here uh, to really attract many more investments in the future. The key, though, is I, I, you know, we need to make sure that we have a workforce of the future uh, here. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're appealing to young uh, people, to students in, in uh, uh, even public school, but also high school, take a look at, at um, advanced manufacturing. Take a look at what the EV industry has to offer because you can make a real difference here, particularly with respect to climate change, but there are gonna be great jobs available. And if we can leverage that, uh, Ontario has got a great future here. 
Well, and there's some opportunities here, and there's some the potential for that, especially with their education system, uh, I think is pretty strong. Fanshawe in London, of course, and uh, Mohawk College in Hamilton. I was just talking with Ron McCurley, the president of Mohawk, uh, the other day. Uh, and, and they're, they're you know, ready, willing, and able to, to jump into this and try to offer that training. Uh, and it goes right into the uh, to the argument and the, the concern, frankly, that we have right now, isn't it, about a skilled worker shortage in this province. Uh, and, and, and here's an excellent opportunity to say, yeah, I can jump into this. And as you say, it's, it's a pretty good way to make a good living, too. Oh, I, absolutely. We've got great co- uh, the colleges uh, in, in the region. Uh, the universities uh, here are all very, very active in uh, uh, in this area, uh, and and frankly, I think the uh, the changes that the Ontario government is making to the education curriculum are also really, really important here in in uh, uh, providing much more practical experiences uh, to entice uh, and and excite people, uh, young people about um, uh, science, technology, and engineering and math. Those are some of the backgrounds. But you know, uh, as we go forward, the careers in um, in uh, uh, EVs and, and in advanced manufacturing in general, it's not just for the techies. It's, uh, an, uh, it's certainly uh, lots of uh, careers open for skilled trades and for technicians, but, uh, but also for people who want to go into business and for artists that want to go into design and, you know, uh, for, for young people who like, and, and older people too, who like to play games, uh, do that on, um, on some of the, uh, uh, the neat new uh, technologies that allow um, uh, engineers to design products uh, uh, online today. So, you know, we've got some great opportunities uh, uh, ahead. We have to do a better job of, I think, of uh, not only preparing uh, young people for those skills of the future, but actually enticing them into uh, the EV industry, into advanced manufacturing, because that's where they can really make a difference. That's what we're trying to do with our our um, uh, careers of the future.ca campaign. Well, and I know that was starting to happen before the pandemic, and of course everything just got skewed because of that. Uh, yeah. But I'd, I'd like to think that they can pick the ball up right now and start doing this again. I mean, if we just, you know, blow our own horn for a second, I know there's a lot of that innovation uh, stuff that you were just talking about that's already been happening in Ontario. And I know you're aware of that, Jason, but just to remind our listeners, uh, you know, in Hamilton, for instance, the, the McMaster Automotive Center, uh, which is located right beside the Innovation Park on Longwood Road there, uh, it's amazing the kind of work that's going on in there. I mean, uh, it, you know, t- uh, when they talk about the, the next evolution of cars and EVs, that's that's research that's happening there right now uh, that manufacturers right across North America are taking advantage of. So it's it's not as if we're, excuse the bad pun, reinventing the wheel. It's already there. We just need to enhance it, don't we? Well, exactly. And, you know, the uh, uh, Automotive Res- uh, Resource Center at uh, MAC is a really good example uh, here. And uh, so here's a here's a problem. We don't have enough engineers in the world to design all of the components and the parts and the materials, let alone the cars themselves, that uh, we know that the big car makers want to roll out over the next 10 years. Aren't enough people in the world to do that. So there's a real skills problem there. And uh, but the uh, Max Auto, uh, Automotive Resource Center has has a solution. We can we can develop a rapid prototyping platform uh, to do that. That's going to attract huge amount of investment, but it's also going to create uh, a lot of demand for uh, for young people with uh, the digital skills to work in that uh, uh, in that particular area. So I, I think it's you know the the innovation. 
opportunities we have here, the assets, are a real attractor uh, today for some of these big investments. And uh, and we've seen that. I mean, I think that's why that's why we're seeing the battery investments, why we're seeing the new assembly investments. But, it, you know, in each of these battery companies or um, uh, facilities, each of these assembly facilities, I will guarantee that the technology will not be the same in five years' time as it is today. Because uh, the technology today is much different than it was five years ago, isn't it? It's Absolutely. It's ever, ever evolving, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we need the skills to to keep up with that. Well, and I know that was one of the, the, the things about EVs years ago, you know, when, when basically Tesla seemed to be, be the only game in town. Uh, and, you know, and they said, well, this is great and it's going to run just beautifully, except most of the tests were being done in Southern California. Uh, you yeah. got up here to, to the GTA and started it. And, you, you know, you, you couldn't even make it to the 427 before the battery started dying. Uh, yeah, that's right. But that's changed now. It's, it's not where it wants to be yet, but it's much different. They understand that, OK, they have to be adaptations here to try to make this thing work in cold weather. And, uh, and that's already started, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, it really has. And again, you know, Canada has some really leading cold weather uh, testing facilities as well here that uh, that are going to be uh, uh, very, very useful there. But, you know, it, it a part of this is the car itself, but a large part of the value of an electric vehicle is everything in the value chain. It's the materials, the, the critical minerals uh, that we need to mine and, and look at green uh, ways to do that, so we're not destroying the environment in a mining operation. It, it's the it's looking at the battery. The battery is the is the mo- heaviest part of a green vehicle uh, or, or an electric vehicle. So how do we get more more power? How do we <clears throat> get the battery to last longer in cold weather, uh, but also downsize, concentrate the energy, and uh, and lightweight the battery? That's a huge innovation challenge let alone how do we design the all of the motors, the powertrain, the materials uh, that, that will go into, and the components, the, electri- uh, the electronics, that will go into uh, electric vehicles. And I think, you know, our, our colleges, our universities, many of our tech companies and our manufacturers are all at the cutting edge of this. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what's so, so really so exciting. Jay, there's, uh, let's face it, there's a lot of competition going on right now. Uh, you know, President Biden's made uh, EVs a big part of his uh, economic growth plan. Uh, he wants to see these plans built down in the States, and that probably will be some of them, I guess. How important is it, though, for Ontario uh, to have the raw materials on hand for batteries uh, right here in our backyard up in northern Ontario? Uh, you know, the United States is going to have to go looking market, and they're certainly not going to get them from Russia. That's the way things are going these days. Uh, but we seem to have, have carved out a pretty strong niche right here. Uh, we've got government support. Uh, we've got support from the industry. Uh, we've got the raw materials here. Uh, if we don't get the, the skilled labor, though, I mean, we're going to fall short in some of these endeavors. So this is, that's, that's got to be a key part of this whole, this whole plan. Yeah, we have to look at the broad picture here and make sure we have all the components to build uh, it, to build the entire value chain. I think that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be critical. A part of that is dealing with the United States too. I mean, the, at the end of the day, our our car industry is so integrated with that of uh, of the um, United States that we have to approach this on a North American basis. I think we can do that, particularly if we have the strengths on the innovation side that uh, that the U.S. needs and the materials as well. And as you say. 
uh, is a lot of those materials are in our uh, in our backyard or, uh, in terms of uh, critical minerals. But then we have to take a look at, well, what does it take to get the minerals out of the ground and make sure that they're processed here with some of our uh, our clean energy, uh, which is a, you know, it's a, it's, there's a huge difference between putting an investment in, and, and trying to limit your carbon footprint uh, in the automotive sector and putting it here in Ontario, where most of our energy is renewable, uh, versus uh, putting it down in the United States, where most of the energy comes from fossil fuels uh, there. So that's a, that's a tremendous advantage for, uh, for anybody trying to develop uh, an EV industry. And I think uh, Ontario especially is, uh, is a, in a great position to do that. But as you say, we need to make sure that we've got the people uh, who, can, uh, who can work in this industry because at the end of the day, the, the tech is great, the innovation's great, but if we don't have people to actually operate it, uh, it's going to be, you know, we're not gonna get very far here. So I, I, I just think here's a, let's look ahead in the, uh, over five, 10 years at, uh, at the skills that will be needed, make sure we've got young people coming in, uh, the next generation of, uh, of manufacturing workers in this, uh, uh, in this sector that can pull it off. We, we can build on the reputation we've already uh, developed, I guess. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons why the automakers, all of them, not just the, the big three, Detroit, uh, but Toyota and, and others, uh, are, are interested in building plants here in Ontario is because of the skilled labor force. They're pretty impressed with, with the people that are trained here now, but we've got to take it to the next level, don't we? Absolutely. And, and you're right, uh, Bill, we've got uh, a, a major part of the, uh, the attraction is the, you know, the, the skilled labor, but also the, and, and also, uh, of course, the role of the colleges and the role of the universities in supporting innovation, the development of, of uh, skilled uh, tradespeople, of technicians, of people who have the, the practical capability of working in a high-tech industry. And that's, uh, that has been a strength for a long time in our college system, uh, in our university system. And, and I think that that is, um, uh, is also a really important attractor for uh, for continued investment here and, and continued progress too. I, I have a, a member of our extended family who's uh, kind of in a roundabout way. He's, he's involved in, he's a, des, a design engineer actually, he worked for one of the big three Detroit companies for a long, long time. And and you're right. I mean, there's an artistry to this too. I mean, there's okay. There's the tech thing of this, and you know, and that part about let's build this and let's make this more efficient. But he's into things like design and everything. And boy, that you know, the world is your 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 oyster when you're doing that because I mean, as you say, the car companies are looking for some innovation and some bright ideas uh, to make this a more attractive industry to consumers. And and there's all kinds of possibilities for people like that in that field. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not about, it's not just about technology. It is about design and it's about, uh, uh, it's about people who want to, oh, it's basically about people who want to apply the great skills, whether that's in artistry or uh, in management uh, or in innovation and entrepreneurship uh, or even in, um, you know, uh, even in economics, I would, I would say, but, uh, you know, the, the career opportunities that are going to be available in an advanced manufacturing sector and, and as important as the EV industry are going to be right across the board. And I, I think it's, you know, the, the skills that are going to be required by uh, these companies are going to be, uh, it's going to be a variety of skills. It's going to be, uh, you know, the ability to design, but 
with an eye to the engineering and the technology uh, as well. So a, a broad skills base here, I think, is is really important. And you know, and frankly, today, uh, math and and science, technology, engineering, the STEM skills, as well as the uh, many of the art skills. Uh, combined these are the th that's what gets you in the door today and uh, and really really important for young people going forward as well as of course the the skilled trades let's not forget that you know the the electricians and the and the um uh the machine uh workers and and uh you know the the carpenters and the all of these all of these skilled trades are so important in turn in for any manufacturing company and that's not going to disappear uh as uh, as the auto industry transforms into a new electric vehicle industry yeah the the elephant in the room of course with the auto industry well, for the longest time of course has been the buy america policies uh which by the way really started back around 2009 it's, it's not a new idea and i know that you know every administration comes in and says that's it you know we want everything built here and sold here etc uh, but there's always been some flexibility at the end of the day with that because of the, as you said, uh, the strong supply chain that has been existing between Canada and the U.S. for so long. We still, most of the vehicles we we, we manufacture in Ontario uh, go to the States for sale. We just don't have that many people to buy the cars here. Uh, are you concerned about that? I mean, the fact that we've got the raw materials in the workforce and the fact that the automakers themselves uh, want to maintain that Canada-U.S. relationship. you got to figure that at some point uh, the U.S. is going to say, yeah, you're right, you know, as long as most of it's made here or part of it's made there, they, they usually find some middle ground, don't they? Yeah, uh, but I am concerned, and I, I don't think Buy America is going to go away. It's been, as you say, it's been there for an awful long time, and it's very, very politically um, attractive for uh, for people, legislators in the U.S. to talk about, oh, we're going to make everything here in uh, in the United States. Uh, you can't go wrong if you uh, if you say that. And it, it already has uh, had a major impact on investment decisions and and uh, uh, here. So I, I I think that is a real concern. But I guess you know the other point is let's not sit on our laurels and the fact that we've had an integrated uh, automotive sector. I think the the key issue is what strategic advantage does Canada bring to the innovations that are necessary to evolve the EV industry as a whole in the future? And as I was saying, you know, we, we bring very, very strong innovation advantages, uh, clean energy advantages, I think, and, and hopefully workforce advantages here uh, that companies just cannot get in the United States. And I think that's that's going to be the the key for the future. We can't depend on uh, the success of our auto industry to date. We need to build on um, our ability to continue to meet the innovation challenges as the industry evolves into an electric vehicle sector in the future. And to your point, uh, there is a sense of urgency here too. Uh, you know, we we need to hit the ground running on this, and and, and you know, again, we're well placed with that because a lot of the uh, the plants uh, they're going to be uh, singled out for this sort of thing. Our, our existing plants, I mean, they just need to be retrofitted. Uh, Oshawa comes to mind, and other plants like that as well, as opposed to having to start fresh and build something like this. But uh, you know, we need that workforce to start training yesterday uh, because yeah. this is going to come out as pretty quickly, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I can tell you, because I've been in some discussions with some of the major car companies as they've been looking for uh, investments and, and succeeded in uh, in attracting those investments to Ontario over the past year. And uh, 
the a skilled workforce, the ability to work with colleges and and other uh, other companies in uh, in the local region to to access uh, skilled labor has been probably the one of the most important determining factors in those investments. Uh, it's an exciting time for Ontario, but uh, and if you want to get on the ride, uh, by all means do. But uh, uh, we're looking for skilled trades and uh, to be part of the 21st century as we uh, evolve with electric vehicles. Uh, Jay, That's always right. a pleasure getting on here with your perspective on this. Uh, congratulations on the great work that you guys are doing at Next Generation. And I know that you're going to be a big part of this, too, as uh, we move forward on this. Uh, let's stay in touch. Great. Love to do that, Bill. Thanks very much. Take care. Jay Myers, who is the CEO of Next Generation Manufacturing Canada. Uh, by the way, if you do want to pursue this, and you should, uh, if you have somebody who's looking for a, an exciting career, uh, talk to your local community college. They've got some great ideas and some great courses that you can take to prepare yourself for that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.